The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. All right, so let's see if it matters to Phil Orlando, Chief Equity Strategist over at Federated Hermes, joining us uh, to talk about that. Um, Phil, so good to have you here on Bloomberg with Bailey and myself. Um, what is it that you find interesting and what are you seeing in terms of trends and flows right now? Uh, first of all, uh, thank you very much for having me back on. Um, we were expecting that the uh, powerful rally that we saw uh, in the equity market, largely driven by that you know, relatively narrow group of eight technology stocks in the first seven months of the year, that there was going to be a reversion of the mean. And, and you know, certainly the August, September, October time frame is as good as any for that to occur. Um, and, and so we thought the pullback might take the S&P back down to about the 4,200 level or so. Let's call it a 10, 12 percent correction. Uh, a, a good chunk of that has happened. Uh, and, and certainly the backup in interest rates, you know, benchmark 10s going from, you know, three and a half percent up into the four and a half percent neighborhood here over the last couple of months has facilitated that. The thing that I find really interesting when you talk about flows and, and I'm going to throw in a, a little bit of amateur uh, technical analysis here is that our bond guys tell us that once the benchmark 10s broke about the 435 level or thereabouts on yield there really wasn't a lot of overhead resistance until you get up to a five handle hmm. so it's interesting that you you know you you hear a lot of the you know bond experts and and well-known people in recent days talking about the fact that they wouldn't be surprised to see treasuries at five percent um, or six or seven. Thinking, <laughs> or well I, I I don't know that I'm willing to step in front of that freight train just yet. <laughs> Uh, but but certainly it's interesting that our duration committee is not adding to duration, lengthening duration here, you know, with this big move up into the four and a half percent neighborhood. I, I sort of think they, they they're sort of seeing that a five percent number is reality. And, and let's let's cool our jets a little bit until we get a little bit uh, better feel for what's going on. Yeah. And Phil, looking at some of the major averages so far this year, the equal weighted S&P 500 is now actually red on the year. This is obviously the S&P still up 11%. Where are you putting money to work and what do you make of that just given the Magnificent Seven, for better or worse, is still holding major averages higher? Well, if you look at the performance of the equity market over the course of the last couple of months since this correction started, uh, the growthier technology-oriented names disproportionately are the ones that are giving up some of the gains. And that makes perfect sense. The areas that we like, that we've liked, uh, have been the areas that were left for dead in the first seven months of the year. Uh, domestic large-cap value, 
uh, uh, smaller cap names, international names, uh, stocks that have lower valuation profiles, higher dividend yield support, uh, and and we we see that rotation. So energy, for example, which has been one of our favorite categories, you, you couldn't give that stuff away in the in the first six months of the year. Now everyone loves energy. Well, you know, crude oil's also gone from the mid 60s into the low 90s. Uh, over the last three or four months, uh, again, based upon, uh, you know, technical analysis or momentum or whatever, some folks are now saying, well, you know, crude's going to get to 100. Well, the fundamentals back in June, when crude was sitting at $65 a barrel, told us that we could get to 80 or 90, hmm. um, were there right. uh, probably earlier than we thought. And, and now we're starting to get some momentum that, that may take crude back up to par. Yeah, uh, it's kind of interesting, right? And we do talk about that certainly at Bloomberg in terms of the, the energy price impact. Um, hey, Phil, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Phil Orlando, Chief Equity Strategist of it, Federated Hermes, uh, joining us with his market outlook. I'm Carol Masser, along with Bailey Lipschultz. You are listening and watching Bloomberg Markets on this Monday. And this is Bloomberg Radio. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app, or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Nancy Curtin, a partner, global CEO, the head of investment advisory at Altitude and Global. Thanks for being with us today. Appreciate it. You heard uh, Jamie Thank Diamond you. there mention what uh, they yeah. could handle 7 to 8% rates. The, uh, the 10 year at 465, that would appear to be at least partially in the driver's seat for equities. What is your outlook uh, for rates and the impact on the risk assets? Well, look, um, you know, near term, we're a bit cautious here. And, and we said to clients at the end of July that trees don't grow into the skies. You know, after 20% total return of the S&P 500, we needed a pullback, a correction, a consolidation. OK, uh, but if we look at the fundamentals, uh, the reason that we have near term caution is what I call sort of a, a litany of triple woes. Uh, you know, the first is the higher rates that Jamie mentioned and that you've mentioned in your program. These higher rates are coming at the long end. That uh, sets the cost of capital for companies. Uh, so that's going higher. In part, uh, maybe it's about a long-term view on structural inflation. Uh, it's also about a rising term premium. You know, uh, I think investors getting to grips uh, with the size of the fiscal deficit. So, uh, you know, higher interest costs for companies and borrowers. Uh, you also have higher oil. Uh, and that's a tax on the consumer. Uh, and finally, you have a higher dollar uh, and dollars up about 7% from the July low. So I put those three things together. I've got a higher cost of capital. I got a tax on the consumer and I've got global tightening. So we do expect um, growth to slow, uh, growth to slow in the United States in particular. Uh, but by the way, that's no bad thing. The third quarter in the United States, growth has been accelerating here. Uh, whether the number comes in at 3% or 3.5% or 2.6%, it's going to be higher than the second quarter. And we do think it's important that growth slows, uh, and that's part of what has to happen here uh, to bring down inflation. And Nancy, all we talk about seemingly is the Magnificent Seven driving major indexes higher. When we look at some of the steam coming off of those big technology companies, where are you looking to put money to work in terms of growth sectors, growth assets, whether it's in the U.S. or outside? 
So first of all, as I said, a note of caution here near term, although I wouldn't be at all surprised to see a year-end rally. But let's go back to the fundamentals that I just mentioned. We need to get inflation lower. Uh, we think it will grind lower uh, as we head into 2024. And remember, for our clients, we're long-term investors. We're not trying to trade in, trade out of the market anyway. That's fool's errand. Uh, you know, as you know, you miss the best days in markets. You miss uh, a lion's share of the return. But as we look forward to 2024, we think there's a possibility uh, of a soft landing, uh, which is to say uh, central banks uh, are able to get inflation low enough that they can dial back on this tightening cycle, uh, ease a bit of financial conditions, uh, and that can uh, lead the groundwork for a bit more of a cyclical recovery. Other parts of the market and economy that haven't participated uh, doing better, and so, yes, while we have U.S. large cap, everyone does, you know, uh, the S&P 500 uh, and the Magnificent Seven are such a large uh, component of the index, but we also have diversification in things like mid-cap, rest of world, uh, areas uh, that trade at a 30 to 40 percent discount uh, to U.S. large cap. And we think these are the areas, if we can get a cyclical recovery next year, uh, we see market breadth uh, widening uh, and these are the areas in particular that will participate and as I said trade at much more attractive valuations uh, Nancy welcome to the fourth quarter um, the after the earnings recession I mean comparisons got to be a lot easier going forward right well not only that but look as I just mentioned the third quarter growth has been pretty strong here so we wouldn't be at all surprised to see uh, third quarter earnings come in above expectations. Uh, and by the way, the people that have been wrong have been the top down and the strategists. The people that have been right have been largely the bottom up analysts. And if you look at analyst expectations, uh, you know, and if you just give their price gain times the index weight, uh, you know, according to FactSet, uh, most analysts bottom up are expecting a pretty decent recovery uh, over the next year. Now, critical to earnings or critical to market is that we actually see some positive earnings growth. That's our view that we'll get it. Whether we get 246, 240 next year or something less or more than that remains to be seen. But positive earnings growth is absolutely critical here because markets have moved higher on price. Uh, we now need earnings not just to beat, you know, do better, less downside, less negative, but actually produce that positive earnings growth. But that is our view. Uh, again, it remains to be seen. And like everybody else, we'll be watching the data. And Nancy, soft landing, is it possible? What are, what are you expecting in terms of where the economy is going? So look, um, what is the definition of a soft line? It has like no formal economic definition, but basically it means inflation can come down without huge damage to the economy and out huge damage to the labor market. And we think that remains a possibility. Nobody can be sure here, uh, but that is our view. And part of it is, by the way, uh, is we do think economic growth will slow. We think it needs to slow uh, from the rather you know, torrid pace of the third quarter. Uh, but actually, there are other parts of GDP that are kicking in here. CapEx spend in the second quarter was up 7.5%. Trade is a positive contribution to GDP growth because we're bringing uh, production back home again. And that means we're, um, we're exporting more than we're importing. We think the government will remain broadly stimulative just given the programs that have passed already. 
So while the consumer was slow, we think there are other parts of the economy that will kick in. Uh, and we do think uh, there's a likely possible uh, soft landing. Now, they're very unusual in history. We've only seen like two since the 1970s. But both of those have also coincided with an increase in CapEx spend that I just mentioned and also innovation. Nancy, always a pleasure. Appreciate it. Thanks for being with uh, with us on the program today. Nancy Curtin, the Chief Investment Officer at Alta Tiedemann Global. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Let's say uh, hello to our next guest. We've got to get him seated first. Uh, and uh, the uh, higher ed chat and we're also welcoming Bloomberg's Janet Lauren in on this discussion, our resident uh, education expert here at Bloomberg. Reginald DeRoches is the president of Rice University. You know, I, I want to start out, the, um, it was over the weekend that the student loan payments began. Um, I, don't, I, I wanted to get your take on that first off after the, uh, the pandemic-induced uh, uh, delay that was initiated by the Biden administration. Yeah, so for, for Rice, as I mentioned a few times, we're a no-loan institution. We meet full need. And so at least from our perspective, we, uh, uh, we really work hard to make sure that we provide a full financial need for our students. We're need-blind as an admissions uh, uh, organization. And so uh, for our student body, it, it's not as much of an issue. I know it's an issue for many students across the country, uh, the issue of, of, of the loan repayment. Hey, Janet, uh, Janet Lauren joining us in studio, our education expert. I want to bring you into the discussion. So we were talking um, a little bit earlier about graduate loans. Um, later this year, perhaps next year, you're going to see the student loan portfolio of new loans are going to be mostly for graduate students instead of undergrads. Can you talk a little bit about graduate education and programs and how those are funded, especially by loans, and how some of your students um, how are they doing in terms of income? Yeah, so uh, we, ha we have a number of graduate programs uh, at, at Rice, and particularly in, in the business and in the engineering side of things, data science, uh, engineering, and, and then business. One of the things we focused on uh, recently is, is uh, making sure, in addition to the full-time programs where students do have to stop work and, in some cases, take out a loan, uh, we have programs now that are part-time, that are online. We have a, in our fifth year of the online, Rice at M MBA at Rice online program, very popular, uh, in, in large part to allow the flexibility for, for people to be able to continue to work while they do these programs uh, online on their own time. And that's really helped with the affordability piece. And we have that both on the engineering and the management side and, uh, and the business side. And in both cases, these students come out you know, doing very well financially. 
And he was just telling us about a new program that was custom designed by um, to, to, for students to work at Chevron, where the employer pays. That's certainly the way to go if you can get someone else to pay for your master's degree. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Absolutely. So this is a program that we designed in concert with Chevron, where they were very interested in in taking their employees who didn't have a background in data science but needed to understand more about data science and AI. And we take around 25 people per year through that program. We've crafted it specifically for people in that industry. And we really provide them with the skill sets to, to be data scientists within, with, within the context of what they're doing at, at Chevron. And we're looking to do more of that with the various industries that are in the city of Houston. You know, I got to ask you about artificial intelligence. How is that impacting higher education? And I don't mean just like, you know, looking at term papers and like, oh, my God, where did this come from? Because you didn't write this kid. Right. So in many ways, I mean, there's the research piece and then there's education piece. The research piece is it's impacting just nearly every field that's there. We're, we happen to be across the street from the largest medical center in the world, the Texas Medical Center, with uh, many institutions and, and medical schools there. And their number one interest in working with Rice is around AI and data science because they know it's, it's rapidly transforming uh, that it, those those industries in the healthcare. Similarly, the energy industry is being transformed through uh, through AI and uh, data science, and so we're forming a lot more partnerships, and we're seeing how research in that space is really transforming nearly every industry. And so we're we're really focused on making sure we we build our faculty with that expertise, so that we can be a major player in some of the research that's taking place in the city of Houston and, and around the world. On the, on the education side, clearly with ChatGTP uh, and other tools like that, uh, our, our approach has been to understand that it's here and make sure that we uh, craft our assignments and our exams with the understanding that students have access to this. And now we're even asking our faculty to, to on their syllabus to ask the students whether or not they're using it for the assignment, just to understand whether or not they're, they're gonna use it and, and make sure you keep that in mind as you're reviewing the assignment. And given the shift that we've seen with a number of companies moving to Texas, how does that position or better position Rice graduates to be better set up for careers after uh, college? Very well. Um, both at the undergraduate level, we've always uh, worked hard to prepare our students to be able to work in a variety of industries. We, we place our students very well. Our students are very well regarded. We have a robust, rigorous undergraduate education that's a good mix of, of, of both technical training as well as uh, a broad-based liberal arts education. So we've done a great job at the undergraduate level preparing our students. What uh, was mentioning earlier, what Janet was mentioning, is one of the things we're focused on now is how do we grow more graduate programs that help with the upskilling that's needed in, for all the industries in the city of Houston. And that's why we're growing more of these professional master's programs in engineering, uh, in, in the business school and other areas where we know there's a major need in the city of Houston. Are there enough student visas to go around? And I, I wonder if you uh, could weigh in on that. Yeah, we, we uh, particularly at the at the, um, uh, the graduate level, in particular at the doctoral level, many of our doctoral students are, are foreign students. Uh, and we've been challenged. I think many universities are challenged every year with the ability to get students in a timely fashion, getting their visas in a timely fashion to be able to come here and do their, their doctoral work. It's mostly really at the doctoral level. We have a large number of, of foreign students. About half of our uh, PhD students are from outside the U.S. And that's, that's something that's been a challenge for us and I think many of my peer, peer institutions. Let me just reintroduce everyone here. Uh, Reginald DeRoches, the president of Rice University, discussing higher education, among other things. Uh, Janet Lauren from Bloomberg News, our education expert. I'm John Tucker, along with Bailey Lipschultz. Janet, you want to weigh in again? 
Yeah, I, we were talking a little bit when we were meeting with reporters and editors about attracting faculty. Um, you're growing not only your student body, but your faculty. Uh, can you talk, is it a challenge to get people to want to move to Texas, especially <laughs> if they're coming from the coasts? So yeah, so we are growing. We're adding 200 faculty for a university of our size. It's pretty signif significant. We have about 700 faculty currently at Rice, uh, and we're growing the undergraduate student body by 20%. You know, we find that if we can get people to Texas, we can get people to Houston, and they can see uh, how cosmopolitan it is, how diverse it is, uh, the rich culture, museum, uh, uh, the museum culture, and music culture, uh, that uh, we, we do well in recruiting, in recruiting people. And so we've been able to so far recruit a, a, an exceptionally talented group of faculty to Rice. We're really pleased with that. And we will continue to work hard. The main thing is to get them there, hopefully not during the summer when it's 104 degrees as it was most of the summer, but we get them yes. at a nice time of the year and, and uh, they really are surprised as to how diverse and, and cosmopolitan and what a great city it is. The research that you do, um, does that then generate business that the university and the researchers can then capitalize on? Absolutely, it does. And one of our big focuses moving forward as a university is, is helping to accelerate that. And so we've created, I created when I became president, an office of innovation and commercialization with the sole purpose of helping our faculty in concert, in some cases with industry, to commercialize their research and, and, and have new startups in, in the Houston area. And we have a, a new innovation district uh, about a mile and a half from campus. It's called the Ion District. The sole purpose is around 14 acres of land right between Rice and downtown with the sole purpose of inviting industry uh, to create more startups in, in the high-tech area of in Houston. Does any of that conflict, I wonder your thoughts on that, conflict with the idea behind uh, research in the first place. It, it doesn't conflict. In fact, it's synergistic. And, and increasingly now, it used to be people uh, recruiting faculty to universities that are really interested in the lab space, more importantly, and the graduate student quality. But now they also want to know what resources do you have to help them start a business or start a company from their research. It's becoming a, a part of what universities do on the research side, absolutely. And we want to make sure that we are equipped to help our faculty who have the interest in doing that. Not, not all disciplines do that. Not all faculty have that interest. But those that do, we want to put the infrastructure there for them to be able to do that. And then do you often help them you know, with patents and then, and then licenses with we do. companies? We have an entire office that does that. And increasingly now we have, we've, uh, uh, we have some seed funding for them, who want, for the faculty who want to start a, a company, just to allow them to get off campus, have space somewhere else off campus, because you really can't do that on campus. And um, we have a, ver a new seed grant program that allow them to do that. And then if there are innovations that are licensed, the university keeps some of that revenue? How does they that do. work? There's, a, there's always a split, and sometimes we negotiate a portion goes to the university, uh, a portion goes to the, the founder of the company and, and his or her partners. And that's often coming from government um, research grants? In some cases, it's coming from government grants. In some cases, it might be coming from private industry grants. And there are different uh, contracts depending on where it's coming from. So another potential revenue source for, for it universities? It is. It is. It takes a time to some time to develop that, but absolutely it is. Right. That comes to mind. Lyrica at Northwestern. Yeah, Lyrica at Northwestern. There are a few of them, obviously. Google at Stanford and, and many others like that. All right. How are the owls doing? They're doing well. We're three and two. Uh, we had a big win earlier this year against our partner uh, down the street, University of Houston, first time in 13 years that we beat them. And we're excited about uh, uh, being in the new conference, American Athletic Conference. And, Will and you explain to me how this is all working? Because it's a complete mystery, college sports at this point. 
You know, I uh, mean, if you're in California, you know, on the lacrosse team, you now have to get on a plane to play Duke. on the East Coast or yeah. whatever. Yeah, or, it's or insane. Or Syracuse, right? I mean, that yeah. really impacts a student's ability it, to then it study. Does. No, it does. I think a, a lot of us are concerned about the conference realignment. I, my daughter was a student athlete at Rice. She was on the soccer team. She just graduated in May. Congratulations. And I, and thank you. And I saw the work, the hard work that she did traveling at, uh, around the country to play games and coming back late at night and having to study for an exam the next day. So I, I think there's a lot of concern about the conference realignment. Uh, I'm a big proponent of intercollegiate athletics. I think it's an important part of a university. I think the student athletes uh, at Rice are incredible people to be able to balance competing at the highest level with the academics, uh, produces leaders, and we will continue to support them despite some of the challenges that, that, that we're facing right now in, in the industry. That was a fascinating discussion. Good to see you. Nice to meet you. Thanks for you stopping too. by Thank the you. studio. Thank we you. appreciate it. And Janet, you too. Uh, Reginald DeRoches, the president of Rice University and Bloomberg News higher education reporter, Janet Lauren. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. With that in the background, our next guest, Matt Stuckey, the Senior Portfolio Manager at Northwestern Mutual. Uh, with your market outlook and expectations, to what extent are rates in the driver's seat? And do you have an adequate explanation for us? Yeah, those are all really important points. And we do think rates are ultimately going to be the driver of the outcome of this Fed tightening cycle, which from our perspective, is a form of recession. Uh, the timing of which we think is uncertain. I think that we've been surprised with the resiliency that we've seen from the economy throughout 2023, especially within the labor markets. But I think anytime we look at Fed tightening cycles since World War II, 10 out of 13 of those cycles have resulted in a recession. And the three that did not uh, did not end up there and resulted in a soft landing. The Fed wasn't in was not in inflation fighting mode, and they certainly are today. Um, so you know we think the outlook is is fairly uh, is fairly kind of headed towards you know the recession camp. However, you know the timing of which is uncertain. So ultimately, the tightening of monetary policy conditions in the form of rates are, are likely going to be the the driver of the end macro result. Yeah, Matt, but it does feel like we've been talking about a potential recession for quite some time. Uh, with that yeah. call, I guess, kind of what are we ignoring or what's different this time than it had been for really the past year? Well, I think the big uh, difference is going to be just the passage of time. And, and let me kind of explain what that explain what that means. You know, if we look back to 2020, what happened, you know, we had such a big refinancing opportunity for individuals as well as companies in terms of kind of what the balance sheet looked like. Uh, unfortunately, that, you know, you're, you're deferring kind of those, those, those larger interest payments out into the future. But as companies have to come back and refinance those issues, um, you know, it does start to dig into growth outlooks. And I think you're actually seeing a case study on this in the utility sector right now. Uh, look at Nextera Energy as an example of kind of reducing forward growth as a result of the higher interest rate environment. It just essentially costs more to fund the projects that they need to grow. Uh, and, you know, that's just a case study for what's likely to unfold the higher, the longer that rates stay in this kind of higher rate environment. Um, is it the defensive shares that we need to focus on now? 
Well, ultimately, defensive parts of the market you know, are going to have their their time to shine in terms of the market cycle, but certainly defensive parts of the market that are rate sensitive, like utilities, uh, are feeling the pain right now. And I know you called out wages being something you're keeping an eye on and think that, you know, is going to have kind of an, a higher impact uh, on what lies ahead. What, what is, what's the thinking behind that? Why are you focused on wages? Well, ultimately, we think wages are kind of the last kind of standing component of the inflation uh, equation that the Fed is fighting against. Uh, we have a hard time seeing, and I think the Fed likely would uh, agree with this, that you know, for a sustainable move lower to the Fed's two percent goal, wages have to be a part of a part of that picture. And a wage environment of four and a half percent year on year, even though it's it's falling and kind of getting down underneath the Fed's kind of four percent tolerance level, still is not going to cut it as it relates to kind of the services component of the inflation equation. You know, John Williams um, talked about this in, in a Bloomberg interview uh, a week or two ago and talked about a 3.2 to 3.5 percent wage rate as kind of being uh, necessary for the Fed hitting their 2 percent goal. We're a ways from that today. And if you look through history, you know, sustainable moves move lower, moves lower in, in wages typically only happen, you know, when, when recessions occur. Um, so we think that ultimately what's likely to take place again this cycle. Where is the team allocating assets at this point? You know, we've taken our time over the last couple of years leaning into, you know, upward moves in rates. And, you know, this leg up in rates over the last three months has been no exception. We've we've recently, for the first time in the last seven years, been over, we just moved to an overweight position in fixed income. But that's been, um, you know, a, a two to three year process for our team. Um, you know, we do like the real interest rate environment that we're getting as fixed income investors. Um, you know, real rates on the 10 year are, are you know, above 2.3%. That's the highest that we've seen since 2007. Um, we think that there's multiple ways for individual investors to um, have an advantage position here, you know, either through a recessionary outcome where the Fed responds with lower real interest rates, or if um, inflation does continue to move lower, you know, those real rates are still attractive in any environment. Hey, how tough has your job become? I mean, do you have customers saying, look, Matt, I can, you know, stick money in a Marcus account and have absolutely no fees associated with that and still get a pretty decent return on my money or even, you know, uh, a short-term treasuries, bills? Yeah, that's a common conversation we're having and not so much in terms of, um, you know, whether or not it makes sense to have a more diversified portfolio, but more within the conversation about how should we be allocating within fixed income you know it's really comfortable uh, to sit in the front end of the curve not deal with any volatility as it relates to movements and rates or movements and credit spreads but we do think that duration is is a wonderful diversification tool in one's investment portfolio um, particularly just because of the refinancing risk um, you know certainly it was comfortable to sit in the front end of the curve in 2006 2007 um, however, you know, when you went to kind of go back, if you were sitting in two-year notes, for, as an example, and, and, and buy those again, come 2009, it was a very, very painful conversation to say, yeah, those 5% rates are gone. Um, you know, you have to lock those in over longer periods of time uh, to have that kind of uh, great diversification asset within one's investment portfolio. So the conversation is more about 
diversification and kind of locking in, you know, truly locking in higher for longer within your portfolio versus just avoiding volatility at all costs. Matt, we had Jamie Dimon say, when asked if rates can go to 7%, the answer is yes. Is that something you agree with? And where are you going to be putting money to work if we see rates getting into the 7% range? Well, anything's possible in financial markets. Um, you know, I, I think that's probably more of a tail risk scenario. Um, but, you know, if, if we do see that happen, I think we would be aggressive buyers of just pure rate in that environment. We would avoid credit. Uh, welcome to the fourth quarter, by the way. Uh, what uh, it, the comparison's got to be a lot easier. But what's what's your expectation as we move forward uh, on the earnings front? You know, the earnings side of the the picture, I think, is is a tough one to figure out right here. Um, you know, look, we've been in a decelerating earnings growth environment. We dipped into negative territory in twenty twenty three. But as you look into what's kind of baked in in terms of consensus expectations for the fourth quarter and, in, and especially into the front half of 2024, there's a natural acceleration of earnings growth kind of coming back into the S&P 500, you know, kind of capping off with the second quarter of 2024 calling for double digit earnings growth. You know, I kind of scratched my head at that number. Um, you know, that would be one of the kind of, kind of abnormal uh, abnormal situations that I've ever seen where the economy naturally reaccelerates in the face of significant monetary policy tightening. Um, I guess it's possible, but for me, I think I'm skeptical. And, you know, to me, I think it's kind of more of the same of what we've been seeing late, uh, lately where companies are going to continue to try and push price down on, on consumers and consumers are pushing back with kind of unit volume declines for a lot of companies. So, I question how long that dynamic can persist. Um, but certainly, the, the consensus is calling for that as we push into 2024. Um, but you know, we're cautious with that with that mm -hmm. consensus estimate, and so it's another reason why we prefer fixed income over traditional equities at the margin here. Matt, a pleasure. Appreciate it. Matt Stuckey, senior portfolio manager at Northwestern Mutual. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. President Biden urging House Speaker McCarthy to follow up quickly with funding for Ukraine. This comes just hours after Congress passed that spending bill without funding for Ukraine. And we say hello to our next guest, Ed Price, a senior fellow at NYU and a principal at Ergo, uh, joining us now. How is this being received? Um, well, personally, I think it's insane. Uh, you know, remember when I was growing up, the Russians were going to kill us at the drop of a hat. And now we seem to have an opportunity to kill bad guys for pennies on the dollar, and we don't want to do it. I mean, is that, does that strike you guys as normal? I mean, I thought the, uh, the Republicans, at least, used to be into that sort of thing. Yeah. And at this point, 
what is your outlook in terms of uh, whether or not this is actually get reintroduced and there will be funding for Ukraine? I think it has to be. Um, I think that if the if the Democrats, if the Biden administration were to come to any sort of deal with the House Republicans that did not include funding for Ukraine, um, they'd have to give up their entire democracies versus autocracies foreign policy theme. That's basically the Biden doctrine, I would argue. So they have to do it. But again, I'm, I'm a bit surprised uh, and slightly dismayed, if I'm being honest with you. You just recently wrote a paper, just to switch gears for a moment, mm -hmm. uh, forget about the BRICS, uh, what about the VIPs? First of all, we have to, uh, with uh, apologies to, to Jim O'Neill, Jim O'Neill, explain what the BRICS are and uh, how they've been replaced by the VIPs. So Jim O'Neill, um, in his genius about 20 years ago, came up with this very famous acronym BRIC, which was Brazil, Russia, India, and China. Later, South Africa joined in to make the BRICS. And his argument was, well, if you look at long-term GDP trends in those countries, eventually they will take over the so-called West. Um, that's kind of happening, which is great. In my bid for acronym fame uh, the other day, I said, well, hold on a second. The BRICS are a thing. We know about the BRICS. What about the VIPs, Vietnam, India, the Philippines, Saudi Arabia? These are the countries Uncle Sam really needs to get on board if he wants to win the 21st century. All right, let's start with Vietnam because I will argue that Vietnam, once an enemy of the United States, is now one of our best friends in the region. That's true. I mean, I would argue that Vietnam was never our enemy if we're thinking about South Vietnam, the country as was. And it was actually the, the communist North, right? Maybe that's nitpicking that was the enemy. Um, but that actually makes your point even better because now the communists in Hanoi are friends with, with Uncle Sam. So you might say, look, Vietnam's a slam dunk, but it is still nominally a communist country. They've seriously got beef with China, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're at the level of like treaty ally. And India somehow is both in the BRICS and also in the VIPs. Yes, I knew you guys would point that out. That's very smart. Yes, India is in the BRICS. It's a, it's a quintessential member of the BRICS. But India also behaves however India wants to behave. This is the non-aligned tradition. And uh, it's a member of the Quad as well as accepting um, Russian arms imports. So I think India is to play for. And India is important because it essentially has the deciding vote in World War III, how big it is and who wins. What does the Philippines have for us? Well, the Philippines is essentially uh, a massive aircraft carrier. I mean, this is the, the Chinese want the, the Spratleys. They want the nine-dash line. I, I will argue that does not come cheaply because Mr. Marcos, as did his, uh, his father, charges exorbitant fees to the United States for that. Yes, I think that's probably true. Um, and there was a time in American history where we might have annexed the Philippines outright and chose not to. So we've... We've decided not to be a formal empire, and the cost of that is that you have to get on board with local politics, you have to pay people to get on board with your vision of the world, and you have to keep up soft power engagements, right? And how does the U.S. get kind of on better terms with Saudi Arabia? Is that just through, you know, golf partnerships or letting them buy sporting teams? Uh, well, that's, that's part of it for sure. Uh, but I think that really and truly the Saudis need security. The reason the Saudis and Israelis are willing to sit around a table is their common, uh, their common distaste for Iran. And I think that if we provide the Saudis essentially with modern uh, defense weapons, modern defense systems, they will be more inclined to help us out with uh, oil supply problems should the Russians later down the line decide to restrict oil supply. Can these countries, especially uh, with Vietnam, uh, effectively replace China as the place where the United States manufacturers go to get uh, 
cheap labor and stuff produced? So this is a multi-trillion dollar question, right? Um, I think the assumption in the back of uh, American business people's minds is that there is a place to replace China. There's some place in the world, a combination maybe of Vietnam, Mexico, and so on, for nearshoring, uh, friendshoring, and so on. I think the problem is that the disruption entailed between the United States and China decoupling or even de-risking effectively shrinks the overall size of the global economy. Right? It's hugely disruptive. So I don't think there's ever going to be a one-for-one -one replacement country such as India. I don't think that works. Yeah. Uh, and uh, in terms of the other countries, what is the future of the relationships between the United States and these other countries, as you can tell? Um, well, I'm hoping and that... And is it based on manufacturing or something else? I think ultimately people are considering two possible futures. One is some sort of continuation of Pax Americana, albeit damaged, and another is some sort of Chinese uh, hegemony. And whereas uh, for the last maybe 20 years, people were slightly more comfortable with China rising as this commercial uh, power, now I think some regional players, particularly Vietnam and the Philippines, scratching their heads and thinking, well, maybe we wouldn't quite like that uh, as much as the international trading system that we have now led by Uncle Sam. If you were going for a longer acronym, what kind of countries could have been playing for a position in the VIPS basket that you built? Right. Well, I mean, the, it only had space for four, so I had to mold the analysis around the acronym. Um, I think uh, countries in the global south are going to be important. Um, I think Mexico's already on board. Brazil is huge, but again, that's, that's firmly in, in the bricks. I mean, you can see what they're doing with their the gold-backed currency project. I mean, ultimately, ultimately, it would be nice to have Russia on board. Uh, and I think that one of the, you know, to, to sort of echo Vladimir Putin's words, it wasn't the collapse of the Soviet Union that was the greatest tragedy of geopolitics in the, in the 20th century. Uh, in my money, it was the fact that we didn't then give a Marshall Plan 2.0 to Russia and sufficiently get them on board with the Western system. You know, maybe even NATO membership, maybe even EU membership. So ultimately, I think the play is to try and get Russia back into the system. Ed, nice to see you again. Thanks for Thank stopping you. by the studios. We appreciate it. Ed Price, senior fellow at NYU and a principal at Ergo on the geopolitical risks and the latest research that he's doing. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. With an investment outlook is Ivana uh, Delavesca. She is founder and CIO at Spear Invest. They describe their, uh, them uh, as a fundamental asset manager and an ETF issuer specializing investments in industrial technology value, value chains. So I'm curious to see what her take is on the market. She joins us here in studio. Nice to have you here with us. How are you? Thanks for having me on, Carol. Hey, remind our world, I did the description off your website, but to be honest, tell us about what you guys do and what you focus on. Well, as you mentioned, Carol, we focus on B2B technology and our niche focus allows us to really have a good sense of what's going on in tech, specifically in, uh, in B2B, business to business, where companies are selling products to other companies. So we are pretty positive on the cycle. We think we're at the bottom of the cycle. What we're seeing today is that hardware bottom and we're just in the early innings of investments, of hardware investments. We think this is going to be a 
pretty big data center investment cycle ahead of us, and that's going to really drive the rest of technology out of this downturn. So continuing to see more upside for a company like NVIDIA, which already has tripled this year and is one of the best performers uh, in the U.S.? Absolutely. So what's happened to NVIDIA, for example, as we saw numbers bottom and increase of the bottom, the stock is ju just getting cheaper and cheaper on traditional valuation metrics. So we believe what we're going to see with NVIDIA, historically, the focus has been growth investors and people trying to capture the AI hype. But as we go forward, really, there is fundamental support from the numbers here. So we believe that as you go forward, there's going to be value investors that will be looking at this uh, uh, at this stock. Talking about AI, talking about data centers. Isn't that kind of wild, though? Thinking of NVIDIA as a value stock, but go ahead. A value stock that's $1.1 $1 .1 trillion <laughs> and seeing more upside after it tripled. It's a different world. <laughs> Arm, the biggest IPO in the world this year, talking up a lot of AI, SoftBank owned, talking up their partnerships with NVIDIA. Is that a company that you see upside with alongside the likes of an NVIDIA or an AMD? So we don't own ARM at the moment. They are indirectly an AI play, but what I would caution investors is that over time, everything is gonna be an AI play, right? So you're gonna have, most applications have AI embedded in them and most products will be able to um, will be able to uh, enable AI to run on them. So over time, we believe ARM will benefit from this trend, but it's not nearly as big of a beneficiary as NVIDIA would be at this point in time. Ivana, do we think about, though, AI in the same vein that we thought about going online, right, in the internet? And at some point, I remember having these conversations, every company is going to be an internet play. Well, they're not. Even retail, while online and mobile ordering and all that good stuff, we still think about brick and mortar. And I'm just wondering, like, do we? can we think about them as the same thing? To hear you say everything's going to be an AI play, I just remember saying that about the internet. Everything's going to be an internet play. And I don't know that it's actually played out that way. Well, that's an interesting point. So when I say everything is going to be an AI play, AI will take part in most of applications that we use. That doesn't mean that every company is investable and every company will offer value. So that's where we come in. We try to look at the fundamentals, model out how much earnings potential does each company have, where does that stand compared to the street estimates, and we're really looking for capturing alpha of opportunities where people are maybe missing out on or not understanding how they are uh, related to AI or how they're going to benefit from AI. Because I remember one of the ways of thinking about the internet play was like UPS, right? Everybody's ordering, so, you know, very different. So how do you think about it? Where do you think will be the best opportunities? Is it somebody who's making the chips for the AI sector or is it something else? So what we see is opportunities across several layers of AI. So the first layer is the hardware layer, which we talked about. So that would be NVIDIA, AMD, Marvell, basically companies that not only offer GPUs, but just broader data center networking equipment as well. We still see those as being in the early innings. The next layer of opportunity will be in the data layer. So here you have a lot of software companies that offer services in addition to the cloud vendors that are also in this data layer. In addition to them, they offer services such as data streaming, uh, enabling you to organize your data better. Right. So this is where we see a lot of opportunities right now because they're not necessarily called AI and they're not necessarily seeing the benefit in the numbers just yet because it's a little too early but over the cycle we believe we're going to start seeing it as we get into next year and is there a third layer and then the third layer would be the application layer and this would be like the application that go either directly to businesses or directly to 
uh, consumers. So an example would be ChatGPT, an example would be Microsoft Office Copilot. So these are the actual applications and it, that's probably the most uncertain layer because we're still trying to figure out how much are consumers willing to pay, how much are companies willing to pay for right. these products, how much do they actually cost on the back end because right. running on GPUs is pretty costly. So this is where there is the most uncertainty. There are gonna be some winners as well, but there's going to be some losers as well, right? Companies that are not going to be able to make the Got business it. case work. Well, when you're talking AI, you can't not talk about the dot-com bubble. And one of right. those things that you're mentioning, though, and I've seen this being mentioned as the bear case against NVIDIA, Cisco was building the internet and was going to be this behemoth that made all the money, but it was actually companies that were working on the applications and actually benefiting from that. I, I know you mentioned that's kind of in like we haven't scratched the surface of that but where are you seeing the money going to be made in the longer term with AI being built out well we believe there is going to be uh, opportunities across all three layers right so in the hardware layer we're still in the early innings so it will take few years hardware is very cyclical so we'll go through cycles right so this is just where the early innings of this cycle it takes usually several years for you to be put putting the infrastructure in place. And then at some point, the valuations will reflect the strength of the cycle and we would be looking to exit those investments. And then the second layer, we're just starting, right? So that's gonna be a little later cycle if you wanna think about it from that, that perspective. And it's gonna be a lot less cyclical. Uh, there's still cyclicality in it, right? Like you will go through na natural down, downturns uh, in that layer as well, but it's all about how much is priced in today versus how much upside you see. We're in a new month, we're in a new quarter. <laughs> Earnings season's on the horizon. NVIDIA has been the big driver for this entire space. Can they live up to the expectations in this next quarter? And they report next November 21st. Yeah. Well, we still see a lot of upside to the numbers. The CEO mentioned that capacity is higher each quarter, so it's increasing each quarter, so they should be able to beat numbers. I think where um, investors may be mismodeling the numbers, and this is why they keep beating by such large margin, is on the pricing side. So everybody's focused on volume, everybody's focused on, hey, are they really gonna be able to produce this many chips? The key is pricing. Just because these new products, the H100 is priced at a two to three times premium to the prior, um, prior version, you're seeing a big uplift to earnings from the from the pricing side. Is there a tangential play off of this? Like I think about security. Is that like, what is the other <laughs> aspects that we're maybe not talking about that's kind of AI pure, but nonetheless important in this play and just got about 45 seconds? Absolutely. So that cybersecurity would be in that second layer. So the data layer. So as you're talking about how to use the data, key will be how are you going to secure this data as well? So we're going to see a lot of companies first protecting applications on the cloud. So cloud is a big theme. And then another big theme is companies trying to embed security in their applications earlier in the process. So before they even write the code. So those are the two big themes in, in cybersecurity. Are there any names in particular that you guys like? Just kind of Yeah, we seconds. like Zscaler a lot. So that's a cloud uh, networking play. And then we also like CrowdStrike. Uh, that would be more going downstream into embedding cybersecurity in the applications. Is there one AI company that we're not talking about that we should? And again, just got about 15 seconds. Well, there's a lot. We disclose all, all our holdings on our website, one, and some of them are direct. Is there one that is in the headlines that you think we should be paying note? Cloudflare would probably not be getting enough attention. They are building out a very unique network of 
uh, GPUs and they're enabling companies to be able to run these GPUs and use a lot of the LLMs. So I think that's one maybe that I would highlight. Great perspective on AI and I feel like covered ground that we don't always cover, so thank you. Ivana Delevska, she's founder and CIO at Spear Invest joining us here in studio. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Well, let's see what our next guest has to say about kind of the macro environment that we are living in and what type of investments uh, investors are really trending to. Uh, with us right now is Amanda Ribello, head of Xtracker Sales, U.S. onshore at the global asset manager DWS Group. Xtracker is, of course, the ETF uh, brand owned by DWS, which has roughly 900 billion in assets under management. She joins us in studio. Hello, hello, how are you? I'm very well, thanks, how are you? Good, what do you make of the macro environment? We're kind of happy to start off a new quarter, but it doesn't mean things won't carry over. How do you see it? Yeah, um, I think that what we feel is that um, Fed policy is being felt in the slowing housing market, and we see that there are higher rates, which are really a reflection of real rates as opposed to like higher inflation expectations. From the equity perspective, um, we're expecting by the end of the year that S&P is going to be at 4,100, and we do expect that there will be a rebound into next year to around the 4,500 level. But That's it's a bit take of a move. Months. Yeah, was not expecting you to go there. <laughs> <laughs> so if you think you're depressed, we're depressed as well. Looking at different benchmarks, so you S&P yeah. equal weighted, we are saying turn negative for the year today. Yeah. Is that going to be trending more towards the downside given that call, or do you see the Magnificent Seven, some of those bigger technology shares underperforming the rest of the kind of market? Yeah, so actually equal weight is something that we've been speaking to investors for a long time. Uh, we actually have a product in Europe, which is almost five years old. And, um, you know, I think that all of these kind of sectoral overweights are definitely something that investors are thinking about. Only last week, we actually had clients also asking us about how do they get rid of overweights in financials as well, for example, um, you know, especially and I don't think that's necessarily like the just, big name financials, like the big name financials. Yeah. So not even like the fears around smaller banks and more banks collapsing. Um, I think that, uh, you know, at the end of the day, there is a need for stepping away from market cap weighted. We think it makes sense a little bit more to think about quality and value inherent in uh, US large caps. So we've been speaking a lot about our product quality at a reasonable price. So it's based on uh, like the Russell 1000, um, thinking about those stocks that display strong, uh, strong components or a strong kind of um, direction towards quality and value. And we think that um, usually we kind of think more about single factors. What's quality in today's environment? Yeah, so quality is thinking about, you know, kind of smaller drawdowns, um, but also thinking about um, robustness and paying out dividends as well. And, you know, divs more more broadly, you know, there's a lot of demand for bird in hand, basically. So if you can't be sure where your price return is going to be, at least thinking about your total return, but grabbing the dividend beforehand. Uh, is That feels conservative sense. to me when I think people are, I think about old dividend reinvestment plans. Yeah. Trips. Even if you don't need income, right? People are asking for this. Well, when you look at the market right now, we have a 10-year yield at 4.69%. Mm -hmm. Jamie Dimon was asked if rates can go to 7%. He said the answer is yes. What starts to break if we see rates in the 7% range? 
Um, well, I think really you think about kind of the impact, something that we're speaking about on the desk a lot is consumer credit, right? So then um, I think already we start to feel the pinch, all of us, you know, like people in, in our industry, for example, mm -hmm. we're definitely not at the brunt of like um, having kind of very tight kind of uh, earnings and so forth, like from a household perspective. But if even we're complaining about oil prices, about uh, the price of gas, about the price of milk, eggs, kind of all of these things, um, then uh, I think a lot of people start to be more dependent on credit cards, for example, um, and you obviously see then like a higher rate that you, they need for financing then. So, I mean, I was in the industry in 2007. I remember I was launching GMAC bonds at par and then two weeks later, they're selling at like 65 to the dollar. I, I'm, I'm hoping it's not going to be as, as dramatic as that, but um, I think that there is a possibility that you start to feel like more pressure on the consumer from that I'm credit hoping. perspective. That feels pretty negative Yeah, that we could actually get there on the consumer side of things. Yeah. And, you know, we always talk about how important the consumer is certainly to the U.S. economy yeah. and keeping momentum going. So yeah. are you saying that we could potentially see an 07, 08 feel, but it's the consumer version of the story? I think um, it kind of ends up transpiring through the, the whole system potentially. But what's interesting is that maybe versus 2007, you actually have more global equity firms now that are reliant on um, kind of U.S consumer revenues and and vice versa right so uh, maybe mm. there's kind of scope for some contagion in some regard in terms of you know I, i'm from the uk FTSE 100 is not just about uk consumer spending and uk kind of industrial demand uh same for you know dax uh cac 40 and and likewise the s p as well with the rest of the world and especially now you start to see uh kind of more broadly not just us rates going up but also european rates as well for example then uh, i think it's maybe not not something that we can always isolate so new month new quarter earnings are on the horizon what matters the most when we go into the fourth quarter you said 4100 on the s&p we haven't been that level since may <laughs> so is that since may since is that earnings breaking is that the fed hiking again is that the economic data really kind of petering out so we do think that there are some opportunities, um, <laughs> even despite this um, this kind of bearish tone in that uh, in that projection. Um, what we quite like is we think there's some opportunities in small cap. We think again it goes back to buying the right names within the S&P 500 as well. Uh, if you if you do want to look at large cap and then also on the mid cap um, part, we quite like thinking about Europe as well. Um, and that's not just because we're a European house. We do think even our US <laughs> American CIO thinks this as well. Yeah. There is some uh, opportunity in European equities. Obviously, they were hammered last year, um, you know, continue to be hammered into the first half of the year as well. So we think there's a value component there. And then when you think about um, European equities, they typically always yield more than US equities as as well. So S&P div yield is about 1.55%. Um, the, uh, the the Eurostox 50, for example, is around, I think, 435, something like that. And then if you think about a dividend-focused strategy on international equities, of which European equities is a large part of that, um, think about HDEF, for example, in our range, you can end up yielding something like 5.65% on an annualized Amanda, basis. Amanda, were you guys as negative? This feels pretty negative. Mm. Were you as negative a month ago, two months ago? Um, I think we were feeling around the same level, to be honest. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, you see days like today where the screen is red again. Because, um, right, we go back pre-August and it felt like it just kept getting better and yeah. better. July, and better. everyone was excited. Yeah. There was no one really calling 
a 4100 for sure. Yeah, I think this 4100 uh, forecast, it um, emerged from us at the end of August. So we've had it on for about a month, yeah. For about a month. Okay, it's just interesting. That feels like a, a much more negative tone, although it kind of seems to me to fit with some conversations we've been having with folks about, like, maybe we're underestimating that it could be worse off than we thought. Yeah, and if we see a U.S. recession, how long and how deep does that go, I guess, with your kind of expectations? Just got about five seconds. Um... I think, to be honest, we haven't uh, yet thought about how long that will be. But uh, when we do, we'll get back to you. All right. Well, we will definitely check in. Amanda <laughs> Ribello, head of you. X-Tracker Sales uh, over at uh, DWS Group. This is Bloomberg Radio. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.